and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Patty McCord is the author of the best-selling book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. And in this conversation, we certainly talk about the power of autonomy and freedom and treating employees like adults and the idea of respect and trust and how do you create an innovative a unique culture within an organization. Patty served as the chief talent officer at Netflix for 14 years and helped create the Netflix culture deck. And if you're unfamiliar with the Netflix culture deck, I highly recommend you Google it. You can download it. You can view it online. They have an updated version and the original deck that she co-created with their CEO, Reed Hastings. It is a powerful tool and it has all kinds of great content. Also the book, I loved her book. It is a small book, but it's a powerful book. It's literally called Powerful. It's 200 pages. It's got great stories in there that she shares in today's conversation as well. So I highly recommend you purchase that as well. And since the uh, Culture Deck was first posted on the web, it's been viewed by more than 15 million people or 15 million times. And Sheryl Sandberg said that it may be the most important document ever to come out of Silicon Valley. So it's got all kinds of great nuggets and wisdom in there. And I think what's cool about both Patty's book and the Culture Deck and really Patty's work at her core is she's not a one-size-fits-all person. So we certainly debate a little bit in this conversation. And if you have studied Patty's work, you'll know that she's not afraid of debate. Certainly at Netflix, they embrace the idea of confrontation 
conversation and debate and really used it to innovate and to create. So if we get into some stuff where we disagree in today's conversation, hopefully you stick with it because it comes from a place of respect. And I really appreciate that about Patty. Currently, Patty coaches and advises a small group of companies and entrepreneurs on both culture and leadership. And she also speaks to groups and teams around the world. I know you're going to love Patty. She's honest. She's truthful. She's genuine. She's authentic. And she's really, really thoughtful as she shares her experience and her knowledge and what she has learned being part of and along the ride and helping to really co-create a lot of what Netflix has done to change content in the world. So here is Patty McCord. Patty, thanks for coming on the podcast. I told you before we started recording that I loved your book, Powerful. Uh, We're certainly going to cover it plenty in this conversation. Uh, But for those that haven't read it, I highly encourage you check it out. It is a quick read. I wouldn't call it an easy read. There's a lot of awesome, powerful information in it. Um, but I just wanted to start there and just say thanks for sharing a lot of your experience, your story. And and also there's a sense of things not being one size fits all in the book. And I found that to be highly refreshing. Uh, and as someone who sometimes likes to go left when people are going right, I highly enjoyed. It gave me enough meat to give me some direction, but mm-hmm. it definitely was not like a Bible in the sense of I have to just follow the Netflix way or the Patty way. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, where I thought we would start is I've had a lot of podcast guests on who are on the speaking circuit. And I'm always curious to get their view because for me, I do speaking, I enjoy it, but most of my work is from one-on-one coaching and that's how I make my livelihood. And I realized early on, as I started to get some speaking opportunities that, whoa, like doing 50 of these a year is not going to be my gig. And I know people that have done even more than that a year. What's it been like for you? Um, I think it's been over a decade now where you've been more in the consulting role and more in the speaking role as opposed to being on a team and working in collaboration or what I I said to you before we started recording in a foxhole with a team. What's Mm -hmm. that transition been like for you over the years? Well, we have to go back before the pandemic because that was when I was speaking all the time. You know, it's just my calendar was completely full. And then everything stopped and I started doing things uh, virtually. And I started thinking about all the ways that work was changing and all the ways my speaking, you know, my shtick worked or not worked anymore. So one of the questions you asked, I think, in the the prep for this was, uh, what do you do before you get ready to speak? And one of my psych up things is, I've got something important to say and you have to hear me. You got to hear me, right? Like, don't keep doing it the way you've always done it. So the speaking thing was fascinating. I mean, I I was a C-level executive. I talked to company meetings all the time. I did all this kind of stuff, but I had to be able to start to learn which audiences could hear me and which audiences I was entertainment for. Hmm. What do you mean by that? I'm funny. My stories are good. Uh, You know, everybody. So here's the thing. Every time I would do a a speaking engagement, people would come backstage or afterwards and say, oh, my God, you know what you're doing makes so much sense. It's so logical. I wish we could do it, but we can't because we're um, we're regulated. We can't because we're European. We can't because our CEO won't let us. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. And then I think about, uh, and then the pandemic, we can't work from home. We can't work remotely. Pandemic happens 48 hours. Everyone on earth is working remotely. And I think that muscle was always there, Mm. right? We could, you could have always done that. You just chose not to. So what it made me think about was my message wasn't just about what I had done that mattered was to inspire people to say, you, you can, you can, you know, you, you just have to stop doing stupid stuff that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. I loved in the book, you, you talked about the difference between 
sort of problem finders and problem solvers. And that was just very clear to me because I'm someone, I'm an idea guy. I come up with ideas all the time and it's amazing. Yeah. A lot of people are great at telling me why it won't work. And I'm uh -huh. always like, well, can you give me one way that this might work? Like come yeah. up with some solution. Um, but it's interesting as I read your book and there's like a thread of you taking yourself out of the work at times. Like there was a story in there where a manager came into your office and and told you all the things they're doing as far as recruiting. And then you said, well, can I help you with anything? They're like, no. And sorry, I waste your time. You're like, no, great. Uh, you've got it. You don't need me. And then yeah, right. another one comes in and you say, go talk to that person. Yeah. Um, but you also talk about, it almost seems like experiential learning throughout the book. Like let's experiment, let's experience things rather than bring in a um, facilitator to talk about team building or, so, or you know, here, like here's the deal. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a shameless copier. So in the middle of, so we're talking about when I worked at Netflix. So when I worked at Netflix, I worked with people who were inventing something that didn't exist before. Right. And so, and, and so I just literally, literally copied from the product people, from the innovators, from the engineers, the people who were like, what is it we're trying to do and what, how could we do it? Right. And so if you're saying, I think linear TV is a shitty experience. Then your whiteboards are full of like, let's try this. Nope. Let's try this. Nope. Let's try this. Nope. And so one of my favorite stories is um, uh, Steve Jobs had called Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix and said, you know, we have this new device and we'd really like you guys to be part of it. And we think it's, uh, really innovative and experiential. We're calling it the transformational device. Would you like to be part of it? So we're like, I guess, right? So it's the iPad, right? So only a few people can do it. And, you know, it's, it's we're going to be the only uh, application on the transformational device that anybody's ever seen. And so we do it and it's really hard and it's all, all this, you know, we don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about it. It's all very secretive. And so I go into a product meeting and I said to them, um, oh my God, it is transformational. I mean, I was in the, I was in a restaurant last night and the toddler next in the table next to me is swiping his iPad, watching, you know, SpongeBob, like he can't read. This is, unbelievable. And I said, I can't wait until I walk into my media room and I can do the same. And so around the table, they start talking. These are geeky engineers. Oh, Patty, we won't make you get up. Um, you'll have a Moodle meter on your phone and it'll say, are you sad? It'll start making uh, a romantic comedy with all the people that I love and it'll start playing. And I thought, wow. One of these days, the right people are going to be in the room and this is going to happen. Why not me? Right? Why can't all of us be thinking about what is it that we're doing and how do we deliver it? And how do we deliver it in a way that's different? And, and how do we feel brave about experimenting if it might not work? How does curiosity play a role in that way of thinking? Well, it goes back for me to my early uh, career. Um, so I started as a recruiter and what drew me into that as a profession was I was so curious about why certain people were really great at certain things. So I remember one point in my career, I was uh, recruiting robotics, mechanical engineers. I mean, I, I would take my sandwich for lunch and go watch them build the, these little arms that would move things back and forth. And I realized that we're all curious about something, right? My, my daughter um, and her boyfriend were here for Christmas and he's getting his uh, master's degree in studying particular kinds of lichen <laughs> that grow on trees. I'm like, thank God somebody cares about that. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, it's about, for me, it's about matching my, my biggest, let me start over. What I say about management is your job as a manager 
is to create an amazing team that does fabulous work on behalf of the customer on time and with quality. And so what you want to do is you want to hire people that care about that. Whatever it is, whatever part of the machine that delivers that. And if you do that, instead of starting with, I want somebody with five to 10 years of experience, then you get the energy of like, yeah, I want to fix this. Yeah, I want to make this happen. Yeah, I care about this. And those are the people that make working with amazing. I love how you said everyone's curious about something. If you were to say what you're most curious about, what comes to mind for you? Oof, right now? Um, what I'm most curious about right now, I'm curious about a lot of technology I don't understand because I'm not with my engineers to help me explain it. Like, you know, what the hell happened with crypto? I mean, how do we think about, we've, I, I've, for example, in the Silicon Valley, I've been involved with people working on AI for 30 years. So I miss being able to say, what, what's that going to mean in the future? And how does that affect normal humans? So I'm, I'm always curious about what's happening new in technology. And I'm curious about um, how we create a society that's not just technical, but has passion and humanity and arts as part of it. Hmm. Can you double click on that a little bit? What do you mean by is passionate about arts? And so I I um, left my position at, on a corporate for-profit board and I'm on two different boards that are uh, nonprofits to help artists regain their position in society because I think that we get so left brain that we forget about creativity which is what you asked me about, right? What's What am I curious about? I'm curious about creating space for people to think differently. Because we get we get stuck. We, we especially get stuck when we get scared. Economy's bad. You know, people, what, what's the new thing? I always, lo I always love the most recent, like millennials, right? 10 years ago. Uh, What's it called? Silent quitting, quiet yeah, quitting. Quiet, quiet quitting. Like, duh, that's new. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every corporation ever has people that do that. Uh, ever, ever, ever. Right. So it's like, that's an interesting new twist on like, like millennials. Let me talk about millennials. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to work. They don't understand how the system works. It's like, well, duh, they're in their 20s. I mean, we were all millennials. What do you want when you're 20-something? Everything. When do you want it? Now. You it's sound like, like you sound like a hippie, right? Like that's what No, I mean, it's like that we all I am. I mean, it was just like, okay, fine. So they don't know. So yeah, I always laugh when people talk about generations. And there was just a recent study that I read that talked about what drives people and and decision making and more than gender or sex or race uh or sexual orientation or when they were born it's actually our personality and right. <laughs> um it's interesting uh, we we replay these um stereotypes over and over and over again like my parents generation they're literally known for being hippies and they uh -huh. have voted they voted more conservative politically than any generation in like the history of our country and, yeah, and yeah. it's like yeah well when they're 22 they think differently than when they're 72 that's exactly like, right and then you know it's like um i was talking to a friend this morning a deep really important friend of mine and he's in his 40s and he's like, yeah, I just think maybe I shouldn't judge people so much. I'm like, yeah, welcome to your 40s, Bunky. Yeah, I mean, and I, I know I've changed drastically. I've got a baseline personality, but when I have kids, like the moment I had kids, my world changed and my viewpoint started to change and things became a little more complicated and I'm watching yeah. nature and nurture. I got two little kids and they're both very different. And I'm like, yeah, Holy yeah, yeah. Oh, oh it's kids are I, have, I have twins, Brian. Oh, yeah. I, have, I have twins, so like- they were different in the womb. They and I was completely uh, an accolade for nurture, 
like I will create this environment that will create these amazing people like or not. <laughs> so, I, you know, back to my work. Um, I think that there's an incredible amount of wisdom around working with people and creating things together that we missed. And that's what I wrote my book about. So when I left Netflix, everybody would throw the Netflix PowerPoint presentation, which has been viewed by a gazillion people in the world, right? And say, we want to do this. And I would say, you know, writing that document took us 10 years, 10 years <laughs> to write. So it's really important to understand that culture and companies and we're creating it all the time and it's evolutionary. It's not something that you figure out, you write down, it's done. So the reason why I wrote my book was to be able to say, hey, look, this is how I pulled it off when I was there, right? And you, and I wanted to be able to say, and you can too. So there's a sense, particularly in the world of HR and the world of management leadership sometimes of like, like best practices. It's a phrase I just hate. It, it just means what everybody else does. So people are asking me all the time now, who do you think is, you know, who, who do you think is doing it right with remote work? I'm like, nope, <laughs> we're making it up. Like, and is it gonna go away? No, it's a whole different way of working. And so who's doing it right? For once, we don't care what Google's doing, right? For once, we don't care who the famous company is that's figured it out because there's not one size fits all. Work but is complicated. You, you said earlier, you said, I do like to steal ideas from different places. How do you blend like your curiosity to learn and to take maybe something from Google or something from Netflix or something from over here and say, you know what, that's an interesting way of doing it while still being authentic and genuine to your organization or to yourself and well, how do you blend it, those two? Yeah, it's back to my um, conversation with you about being a product manager, right? So sometimes when I look back on my time at Netflix, I would say I was the product manager for people or I was the CEO. IO of uh, infrastructure that supports people, right? So let's take that. It's like, you've got to begin as if it's a product. What, what, what are you trying to do here? So let's take management. I'm trying to figure out, I think that the annual performance review is a waste of time and full of shit, right? It's just like, everybody hates it. You hate it, I hate it. Everybody hates it. Okay, so what's a better way of doing it? like any other product you drop down and say, what's the purpose of this exercise, right? What's the purpose of this? Is it to give people feedback so that they'll, their performance will improve or is it to figure out how to pay them? Those are two completely different things. And the linking them together is really not logical. I'm going to pay you next year for what you did last year that may not matter for next year. So when you start to break those things down as products to deliver, to make the company successful, then you think about it completely differently. Oh, wow. If I want a feedback mechanism that really changes people's performance, it better not be once a year. That's ludicrous, right? So again, it's like being able to look at any other, all the things that we do all the things that everybody does, all the things that are institutional with fresh eyes and say, okay, if we started over, would we do this? It's interesting. I love, there's a point in your book where you compare Netflix and Google and say they are very different companies. Google has this wide ranging platform and they're focused on everything and we're focused on one thing. And and that really resonated with me because I am definitely someone who's drawn to everything. And mm -hmm. I like being uh, like this podcast. I have you, then I'll have a basketball coach. Then yeah, after yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I'll have yeah. an, an advocate and then I'll yeah. have, you know, a teacher. And like, yeah. for me, the diversity of those people I find fascinating. If I just had a podcast with athletes, I would get bored. Um, for yeah, me. But, yeah, yeah, but, but, but I think we're, similar in this way it's like 
all of them contribute to what you're trying to do, right? Whatever you're trying to achieve. So that it's you, we started out before we even started this about um, athletes and teams. And I have this big deal of teams versus family. And, you know, you can draw, you can draw ideas and inspiration from everybody and everybody should. Right. I mean, I when I left Netflix and I started really looking at things that people were doing that inspired me, most of it was about coaches. Right. I so I'm on the stage with these professional coaches of these amazing teams that are accomplishing these incredible things. And when they talk about what they do to to inspire their team players to do it, I'm like, so totally logical. Hello. Why don't we build that into our corporate structures? And it is interesting because sports teams, well, I've spent a lot of time around sports teams. And last yeah, night, yeah. last night I brought my son to a lacrosse practice. And at the end of the practice, they go one, two, three, and they say the, the team name. And then they say yeah. four, five, six, and they say family. And I have said to sports teams for so many years, because they all use the word family. I'm like, you don't cut your family. You don't release your family. You don't trade your family. Uh, at least not in my family. I'm sure maybe in other families, they do actually cut and, yeah, and yeah, sever yeah. ties. But there is an interesting dynamic that exists in sports. You know, I, yeah, I've, I've yeah. rethought it a lot because I, I have always been pretty black and white about it. It's like, we're not your family. We're your team. The team is there to win. Um and I'm pretty harsh about it. It's like, you know, if you're not the right person on the team for next year, because we're playing a different, uh, you know, different league, then, you know, it's not that we don't love you. It's not that you're not talented. You're just not the right person. And all of that I think is logical and reasonable. But what I think I left out in my message about team versus family is that you're going to work with people that are going to become part of your life. And it doesn't mean you can't love them. Mm. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean you can't. <sighs> Last week on my birthday of a person I've known for 30 years professionally showed up in my driveway. And I said, what are you doing here, Stanley? He's like, I just miss you, Patty. Mm. And I realized like he's part of my life because he was a colleague that and, and and he's a particular example that's really great. He said to me one time, he's a very uh, accomplished, uh, complex engineer. He worked on our early AIs, brilliant guy, right? And he said to me one time, I never want to manage. And I said, you know what? I never want you to either because you kind of suck at it. But you're a leader. You're a technical leader. And you have to take that seriously because everyone wants to be you. So whoever you decide you are, it has to be something that's worth their, their admiration. Can you be a leader and not a manager? Oh, for sure. What does that look like? Uh, it might be a technical leader. It might be a cultural leader. It might be somebody who's inspiring. Um, you know, the thing about, I say that leaders are people who other people want to follow. A manager is somebody who organizes the work and builds the team to build great stuff. Does a manager have to be a leader? Sometimes. But they don't have to be is what I'm hearing from you. No, no, I'm not going to take that away from them. I'm going <laughs> to hold them to it, right? You have to be, you have to be able to impart inspiration. I said to Reed one time, if you want them to lead, then, you know, if you want them to follow, then God damn it, lead. Mm -hmm. Right. You got to turn around and say, people are like, yes, I want to do it. But it's a, it's both. But the, the managerial part of it is a set of skills that is teachable and learnable. And it's about creating great teams that do great work on time with quality service customer but it's about honesty in doing that. Can leadership be taught? It can be modeled. 
Right. So a lot of times you asked me earlier when startups coach, you know, when I go to startups, I'm like, who's the person that models great leadership, right? You have to see it. You know, to be it, you have to see it. You have to see one of my roles often still is, is the person who says, I'm the naysayer, but people still respect me. Right. And so people have to see that that can happen and that they can do that so they can create that as part of their um, their ability to lead. It's interesting when I think about seeing it, I'm also thinking about feeling it. And yes. Yes. When, I, when I'm when I'm doing research on you and, and read to a certain extent for this interview, it, it became clear as like Patty was offering some emotional intelligence, some um, something different than what a typical engineer can provide. And there's great value in having Patty as a right-hand person in this organization. And just today, I had a conversation with a leader whose boss has an engineering background and they're struggling with them at emotion at an emotional level. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about emotion, emotional intelligence, whatever you want to call it, feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you see that playing a role, especially with people that are more technical and especially with those relationships that you were in a foxhole with? And how much did feelings come into play when it came to leadership, influence, power, all that good stuff? Well, from my point of view, which is the the softer skill point of view, you you must speak in their language. You must, you must be able to say, if this happens, then this happens. You have to use the scientific method. You have to use math. You have to use deliverables. You have to use revenue. You have to be able to say, you know, if we have leaders who create great teams, then they're going to produce more on time and we're going to blah, blah, blah. But that yin and yang is about respect and it's about trust. So here's a story. I'm walking across the lunchroom at Netflix and I see a gaggle of engineers and they see me and they start shispering. I call shispering, which is whispering shit about somebody. (laughs) And I know it's about me, right? So I sit down and I'm thinking, why are they talking about me? Oh, I'm a section 16 officer. My salary has just been published on, um, you know, the internet sites that do that. And I said, oh, you guys just found out yesterday how much money I make. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> like, oh, we try. <laughs> they're, they're so introverted. They're like, oh, and I'm like, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Like, I can't write a line of code. And here in this table of four people, three of you have PhDs. So like, it's unbelievably clear that you're smarter than me on many, many levels. And I said, but here's the, you know, wanna, you want to know why I make so much money? Because my decisions are consistently right. So if we don't have the right people in the right place, the right time to lead the organization, to move us forward then we're in trouble, right? And so that's those are the decisions I have to make. So I'm about to go have a um, termination discussion with somebody who's important in the company. Any of you guys want to do that instead? <laughs> you know, and they, they can't. I'm like, I know, I know it doesn't seem hard, but it's really hard. And so the why you get rewarded for building great code is that it works. And that's my metric too. What's key to making good decisions? Beginning with the end in mind, you know, knowing not only where you're going, but, you know, one of the things I think we don't do very well in management or HR, what consulting or whatever we do is we don't, add time as an element and almost every other function does. So we don't say, Hey, you know, we want to have a team that's going to be able to deliver this first quarter next year. We work backwards from what that team needs to be to who we have and how we're going to, 
make a plan to do, make that happen. We're like, someday, you know, someday it'll all work out. And I think that the precision around making business decisions around time needs to drive down into the organization. Because the other thing about that is if you say, here's the time frame, here's the deliverable, here's what we're going to do, and it doesn't work, then you can go, okay, great. Now we learn from this. Now what? Yeah. I mean, when I work with my clients, like we're recording this on January 4th, 2023, people are quick to be highly critical of goal setting and new year's resolutions. I understand why they're critical of that. And, and what I would say is the new year is just an opportunity for you to reset and think about what does success look like? It could be for the next three months. It could be for the next six months. It could be for the next nine months. It could be for the next year. You you don't even know how many CEOs I talked to at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm like, so, you know, and and at this point, you know, I'm a pretty popular speaker and I'm talking to a fortune 100 company. Right. So I'm like, so that month of January that you spent on your five-year plan, how's that working for you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it looks a little different. Hire <laughs> executive team down for a month to talk about five years and you're wrong. You're just wrong. Right. So I, you know, I absolutely think six month increments are really critical and it's great to have a five-year plan, but you've got to rewind it back again it's like a product plan like and so to get there what do you need to build in order to accomplish that at that moment in time and so uh, if all of us learn to operate that way then all of us will learn to communicate that way which is saying wow you know this thing we thought six was going to take three months to do that's going to take a year we better let people know yeah when I went back to school for executive coaching, there were like these questions that I leverage all the time that are really, really valuable. And the questions when I meet with people are, what do you want to work on today? What would success look like for this meeting? Why is this meaningful to you? Um, and, and what what's getting in the way, right? That's like, right. And, That's right. and those same questions can be asked if you just start a new year and just say, all right, what does success look like for the next six months? Uh, why do you care about this? Why is it meaningful? Um, what is currently getting in, what's going to get in the way of this being yeah, successful? Yeah. I'm 100% um, in agreement. Right. And then what do you want to commit to? How do we, how do we actually make this happen? And then there's a, an accountability process to that. And I find that a lot of people don't spend time visioning the future. I think most good CEOs do a lot of that. Um, but a lot of us don't. And then the other question of like, Hey, how would this end in disaster is a really important question. Yes. And you, yes. You might, you probably aren't going to come up with all the solutions. Yeah. Well, two things that you said that I think are really important is what do you want to commit to? And if what you want to commit to doesn't line up with what you need to commit to, then that's your decision, right? The company doesn't need to change so that you feel good about your commitment. <laughs> that's one thing. And the other one is, yeah, I mean, we could be totally wrong. And then what? Right. How do we that with disaster planning is something that I love. It's like, what if it goes to shit in a handbasket? Okay. I, I there's but there's an opposite one that I love more. What if it kept going? Mm. What if we kept seeing success? So my Netflix story is um we're in an executive meeting, reads on the cover of he's CEO of the year. You know, our revenue has grown. 30% quarter over quarter, three quarters in a row, right? So we're like, we are the executives of the world. We're amazing. And Reed wants to do what you just said. He wants to do disaster planning. I'm like, what if it kept going? Like, what if it was the disaster was success? So the CEO goes up to the whiteboard and he's doing, you know, top line revenue, 30% quarter over quarter compound. He's like, <laughs> Oh my God, it's so much money. And the head of content, Ted Sarandos, who's now court co-CEO says, and at the time we would say, one of these days we'll be as big as HBO. One of these <laughs> days. And Ted says, it would be next year. Wow. We'd be, we'd be HBO next year. And we all kind of went, 
And the, the head of engineering says, you know, that would be a third of the US internet bandwidth. And I'm like, <laughs> so I'm like, can you stay? I said to him, Neil, does anybody know how to manage that? He's like, no. So we start brainstorming. Is it Yahoo? Is it Google? Is it Amazon? Is it who, who knows how to manage? Because video files are huge, right? So how do we even do this? So we go back to our uh, IT team who are amazing people. And we say, here's our problem. And one of them says, you go uh, exec something, we'll build the cloud. And I said, you know, if anybody on earth could do it, it's you. But not nine months. We couldn't buy the equipment. Right? So then we go in and, you know, one of the guys in the, the meeting says, I've been here seven years. Are you telling me I might not be part of this team? I'm like, I don't know, but we're not going to, we're not going to fail because you don't know how. So those conversations, those real conversations about people and timing and future, adults can have, we can have them. Why don't we? Uh, we're trained not to. We're afraid of hurting people's feelings. As soon as we get into the realm of um, hard conversations, we automatically assume that the recipients of the hard conversations are children instead of adults, where you go, look, I love you to pieces. I'm <laughs> not sure you're the right one. We just don't know. It, it, it's you and I talked about this earlier. It's just like we don't have the, the tools to go. Here's the reality. And here's where you are. How do we make it right for both of us? What do you think of the word loyalty? Um, I think that it's old fashioned. And I think that it's not critical but I think it's important when times are tough. So I just don't know. I mean, you know, you've done all this work with all these athletes. How do you think about loyalty on a team like that? Like if you're not the best center forward, but you're really loyalty, you're really loyal. Should you stay in sports, especially in collegiate sports, you hear, hear coaches say, I need you to buy in. I need you to buy into my system. I need to buy into what we do and how we do it. And I've yeah. always rejected that phrase. I, I think you want people that are all in. You want people that are all into what you're doing and the vision and the mission and the values and the way in which you want to play and the system. But the way they get to all in is through collaboration, through curiosity, right. through right. tough, right. difficult, confronting conversations. And, and success. And success and seeing. Right. And like, seeing you know, you can, you can have all those things and be a shitty team. For sure. Right. And I've seen so deeply loyal teams that suck for sure. <laughs> Yeah, so I I just don't know. I just don't know that it's relevant in the modern world. I also wonder, though, like um, it, uh, to counter it, like I'm deeply loyal to my wife and that relationship. And yeah, I, that's, I, not, that's not your work. It's not my work. But what about a partner? Right. What about people that would say that their business partner and they have to be loyal to each other? for the sake of the business. Okay. Um, but sometimes that loyalty, which is different than your loyalty to your wife, is to be able to say, this isn't going to work anymore. By the way, I can do that with my wife too. And I think that would you actually- You can, but it's, but it's different. The consequences are immeasurable. I know they, they are with your wife too, but that's not how we operate with our spouses. But with our business colleagues, we should be able to say, what's the right thing for the company? What's the right thing for the customer? And, you know, families, you know, you get into the wife, you're into the in-laws and the grandparents and the, and the children yeah. and, the, you know, all these things that are not part of the thing you do as a company. So I just, I really deeply believe it's two different things. Interesting. And, and as you think about, you just mentioned 
um, adults and we should treat them like adults. And you had me thinking like, they're not kids. Look, I'm at a time in my life where my kids, I put everything through the lens of parenthood. I've got a six, almost six-year-old and a seven-year-old. And so when I hear you say that, I'm wondering about my communication with my kids and, you know, my son who loves football, <laughs> um, I know his genes, A, and, and B, like, I don't want him to play football. Um, but, like, I, I go back and forth on, like, how do I let him have his dreams and explore the world in his own eyes? And I think one of the things me and my wife do a pretty good job of is we actually treat our kids, I wouldn't say, like, adults, but we don't baby them, uh, I think. And we do try to give them autonomy to make decisions when when possible and under certain boundaries. And so I think about... For me, it's helpful to think about partnerships, businesses, sports, and then to think about my family and how we're operating. And um, it's definitely yeah, not the same. I'm gonna t- I'm gonna tell you. Um, good luck. <laughs> um, it's just apples and oranges. Because you think family is more complicated. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's forever. And and work isn't. It's not forever. It's just not. That's the modern world. That's how we operate, right? We're going to go in and out. We're going to meet people that we love. We're going to meet people that we hate. We're going to do jobs that were stupid. We're going to do jobs that are amazing. But that is not the same as your six-year-old. And if you if you think about how you treat your six-year-old and try and let, let me flip it the other way, right? So you're saying... I know a lot about relationships. I know a lot about teams. I know a lot about working together. I know a lot about values that I want to pass on to my children and flip it around and go, um, how should I think about that with the people I work with? They're not six. They're not, they're, they're fully, hopefully formed adults who have six-year-olds. Yeah. Just to be clear, I don't think I know shit. So like I- No, no, like, no. I'm, I'm like, just saying, it's just like, it's not for for me. Yeah. It, it, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody about this this morning. The, the, the role that you have at work about creating amazing teams is about- particularly in capitalism, is something that's very different, very different than your role as a parent to create um, adults that matter in society and they're going to make a difference in the world. It's I just, agree with that. It's just not... It, it, there's some crossover, but not a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me at least, um, what I find with a lot of my clients when it comes to exploring and how they want to show up, a lot of it comes back to them being curious and trying to explore and trying to find things out. Right. That's right. Right. And, right. And, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I'll admit that in my early days as a feminist, my, my easy target was, you know, where I'd say, do you want, do you want your daughter to grow up where someone touches her butt when she walks by? <laughs> then don't do that. <laughs> so, you know, it, it flops over, but my manage, my message, the mark I want to make in my life is about creating environments where people can do their best work. And I think family is a really important part of it. I think that this our new um, from the pandemic working from home has changed everything. And it's allowed both the workers and the companies to say, well, there's more to life than when you're here at work. And I think we have a huge opportunity to explore the future. Yeah. One of the challenges. And and so I had an office for myself um, and um, I actually got that office when I had kids because I wanted the separation uh, uh-huh. from my from my home life and my work life and to really separate the two. 
when the pandemic hit, I wasn't allowed to go in the office. So I started working from home and then my lease came up. So I ended up staying home and I'm going to work from home for, for the foreseeable future. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. But what I'll tell you is my favorite moment of my day, most days, and I love my work. I love my clients used to be when I pull into the garage uh, the kids would hear the garage open. I'd walk through the door and I'd hear yeah. my kids running to me yeah. and just saying, daddy's home, daddy's home. And they give me a big hug. And it was this amazing moment. And for me, it allowed me to separate whatever was going on at work and say, all right, I'm at home. I will say though, I live in a world today where we have these smartphones in our pocket. And for my generation, it's very hard to separate when we're at work and when we're at home, because we've got this thing vibrating and buzzing oh, and, and we can so, bring it home. It's a yeah. big challenge. And, it, and, and so like, I think one of the challenges that is going to continue to come for people that are working at home is to figure out the boundaries and the lines so that they're not on all the time. And while there's something beautiful about at three o'clock, some days I can go out and throw a baseball with my son or, or go yeah, and, and, yeah. and, 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 pick my daughter up and and have these experiences. I, I, I do find it challenging to say, all right, you know, I'm out, I'm at work, even though I'm at oh. home and I need to be at work and now I'm at home. And how do you do that? It's tough. You have to stay in touch with me forever because, <laughs> um, you know, people call me like, what do you think? Like I told you earlier, who's doing this right? I'm like, well, nobody. And secondly, you know, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, you and so i would say the challenge i'd throw back to you is you're it's new you can do it any way you want it yeah i'll share how i'm doing you you and your clients can experiment with it and you're going to screw it up it's okay right just keep trying and i think it's so much healthier it's it's so much my you know my son's I have a granddaughter who's three and he's, you know, been at home from the time she was born and their experience together is something I've never seen in my working life. So I think, so I would say to you, my gift to you is you, you go like yeah. the one thing I did was I did say to them, I said, guys, the best part of my day used to be, I'd come in the door and you guys would run up to me and say, daddy's home. So you know, I have this sports background. I go, you know what? Let's practice it. So I'm going to walk down the stairs. And when you hear me walking, and sure enough, like every day when I walk down the stairs, my, my son, who's the more obedient of the two, whether that's going to be yeah, good yeah. for him in the long run. And my daughter who is more fierce and she is going to take over the world one day, uh, he comes running up and she usually follows to, and they give me a big hug. Um, but they also have understood like the boundaries of, Hey, if I'm up, I have a loft. So if I'm in the third floor, they sometimes will knock on the door, yeah. wave to see if I'm available. And sometimes I'll bring them in. And sometimes I'll be like, no, I need some time. Um, but it is an interesting dynamic. And even more than that, the technology that you described earlier with the iPad. And I remember being in San Francisco when the iPad came out and they had these things called apps and I had a Blackberry and I'm saying to my <laughs> wife, I don't get it. I can go on the internet on my Blackberry and I can go on to ESPN.com. Why do I need an ESPN app? But thankfully, uh, the people at Netflix and all other, other places understood the power of, yeah, but, you know, I, I, but, but the relationship between work and family is a never ending one, particularly for those of us in the U S I've been reading this book about like homesteaders in the Puget sound. Right. So it's a journey. For me, boundaries are big. And so like I have autonomy in my work. Like I can decide how my schedule is and when I'm on vacation. And I'm fortunate in that way. Like I can decide what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. So I just block. I do a year long blog. It's actually like pretty <laughs> structured. And of course, there are opportunities that come up that will change that. But yeah. I find if I create those boundaries, it allows me at least the opportunity to you're discovering something there that's always been there right and so that this is a perfect example of a story where you're saying i've discovered that i can manage my time i've discovered i can manage my boundaries i've discovered that i can make it all work together because i am an adult i'm a father i have children that's always been there 
right? And what we did was we put on top of all that, the rules that say you have to be at work from nine to five, you have to do this, you have to do that. And so what I'm saying is my inspiration for you is leverage it, play with it. Like how do we create a new way of working where we can have our families, but we don't have to substitute them with our work colleagues. Let's make a way that, you know, so I, I'll leave you with this story. Uh, when I left Netflix, it was the beginning of another dot-com boom. And there were all these people in San Francisco who were chief happiness officers or chief people, people, whatever. And I remember going into this startup and somebody, I said, um, what do you do? And she said, I'm in charge of making people happy. I'm like, well, how do you do that? She said, well, it's mostly t-shirts and it's, you know, uh, the bar and it's the, and I'm like, Hmm. Um, and she's, I said, why do you do that? And she said, because if we don't, then people are going to walk out the door, they're going to turn right. And they're going to leave us for another company that has better beer. And like, you know, if somebody's going to leave you for better beer, you might want to say, invite me for happy hour. Right. And I said, here's my assignment for you find five people in the company that are amazing. doesn't matter what their titles are. doesn't matter what their rank is. Five people that have really made a difference in who you are as a company and talk to each of them and say, tell me about the time you mattered. And every single story is going to be about something that's hard, right? Because that's what we do at work. That's very different than what we do at home, right? We're like, it was hard. And we, and we debated and in the end we said we could do it and I think that 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 back to the sports metaphor we won right we came together as a team and we did it and so let's learn how to create that energy at work and still be able to create the energy of being a great dad and a great parent and integrating that I love it. Look, you still have the energy and the passion and I hear it in your voice and I I hear how mission driven you are to try to change how people think about their culture and innovation beyond just a product, which is really really cool. And I want to end this with how we started it because I was not satisfied with the answer I got as probably the question I asked on your own satisfaction not being in the foxhole and not being around these people and collaborating. I understand you are on stage and you can impact people and change how they think. And then that can be a spark or you can coach or consult somebody. But I look, I'm, I am the first one to admit, like I don't take my clients work home with me the way that they're taking their work home with them. Um, it is different when you're in it 24 seven and, and you're very open about this in the book. Like you and Reed would talk at two in the morning and that's how he even recruited you. Like there is a madness or an obsession or a craziness that goes to building something difficult and hard to your point. Like, do you miss that energy? Do you miss like collaborating on something that's going to change how the world operates? Absolutely. Of course, of course I do. Right. But I'm so my journey now is to find a place where I can feel that same energy, but it doesn't have to be in a company and it doesn't have to be in that role. And so I'm free now to do like I told you earlier, I'm I'm working with a group of artists and I can talk to them about well, what do you want to do? How do you want to think about it? Right. The the coaching that both of us do applies to so many other things than business. And um, so I'll leave you with like, I I'm a grandma. <laughs> my mom's 88. My sister has cancer. My life work is a really different thing than it used to be. And it's perfectly fine with me. So that's the second I'll leave you. So even though I want to talk to you for another hour, um, <laughs> we'll we'll close with this. Uh, Patty, I know you have a website, pattymccord.com. Uh, if people want to connect with you, is that the place for them to go? And obviously the book is called Powerful. I'm deeply curious about even the word choice of powerful. Power is such an interesting word. 
I'm, you and I can talk offline and I can learn more about it. Um, I've got more questions and answers at the end <laughs> of this conversation, which is usually uh, when it is a, a great conversation. Um, is there anywhere else or anything else you want to plug? Or is there a nonprofit that you're passionate about that's related to the arts that people can support? What can we give a megaphone to as as we close our um, I'm I'm working with a group called Black Sheep, B-L-K-S-H-P. And it's a nonprofit that's supporting artists. And I'm really loving that right now. And can people find them online? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So blkshp.org.com. Where do they find that? You know? I believe they're .com. But... All right. Well, we'll find it. We'll throw it in the show notes. Um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. Twitter is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And all of these conversations are at Strong Skills dot co slash podcast. Patty, thanks for your time. Thanks for everything you do and looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Brian. This is super fun. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Well, it goes back for me to my early uh, career. Um, so I started as a recruiter and what drew me into that as a profession was I was so curious about why certain people were really great at certain things. So I remember one point in my career, I was uh, recruiting robotics mechanical engineers. I mean, I I would take my sandwich for lunch and go watch them build these little arms that would move things back and forth. And I realized that we're all curious about something. 